0: Hello and welcome to All About Fertility podcast. I'm Ella, your host. I hope you're all well. Feels like ages since I've um, had a podcast and I guess it has. I've taken some extended break, I guess, from the Easter uh, holidays and um, I've taken a break from podcasting to organise the virtual expo, which I will talk to you about a bit later. But today I have a guest and they're sharing their story and I love people sharing their story because it opens up the conversation and for those listening it means that you can relate to someone and you know you're not alone you're not going you know someone's going through the similar experience and it gives you confidence to know that you don't have to walk through this alone you know i myself have met such amazing women who are willing to support you and give you words of encouragement and so my guest i have actually never met and um i met her via instagram and we just clicked she's from the states and i'd like to welcome jane thank you ella for having me um
1: for all, that, all those that are listening, I also go by Akua um, as well, A-K-U-A, um, and it's partly because I want people, when they listen to me, to be able to, um, especially people of African descent, to be able to feel like they can relate, um, because I am also of African descent, um, to be exact, of Canadian parents. And so um, I choose to sometimes go by that as well. So, you know, if you're listening to me and you're of African descent, that, um, you know, you're not in this alone. um, And you're not the only one. So, yeah.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Thanks so much for that. And, you know, I love... Hearing that, because at times you just want to see a face that yeah. you can relate to that represents you and your journey, yeah. and it doesn't make you feel isolated or, you know, make you feel that you're the only one in the world going through this from, you know, yeah. your background, whether it's an Indian background or yeah. um, Chinese or African. I'm
1: sitting here and I'm nodding to everything you were saying because, you know, it's almost like a taboo in the African culture to um talk about this it's it's like it doesn't exist but in reality it exists um and so for people that i have found of african heritage that are going through it there's a sense of relief when i talk to them to let them know they are not alone Mm -hmm. and so this is why again i choose to also go by my african name as well although um on my legal documents and everything since I was born, it's Jane., um, yeah. but I choose to do those because I really want people to feel that comfort, the stigma t- to remove that stigma, yeah. to remove that taboo, um, you know, from all of this the mystery
0: yeah.
1: um if I might say from all of this. So yeah.
0: Excellent. Okay, so you've given us a little bit of background on yourself. So you're of African descent. Um, so just tell us a little bit about yourself. Now, you, you've got an American right. accent. So you grew up in America, <laughs> I'm going to assume. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, you know, people will say that. And then when you're in America, we have so many accents. People are like, where are you from? And then you're like, um, yeah, which part again? <laughs> you know, and some some would actually say Caribbean accent to me, which is kind of funny. Ah. Um, but um, so, yes, I am of African descent, um, as already mentioned, born to Ghanaian parents. However, um was born in Nigeria, which is quite interesting, um, and lived in Botswana, which I turned to call that as home and um, was sent to um, school in the United States by my parents my family seems to have made Botswana um, home, and so I tend to identify more with there than Ghana. Um, um, and I moved to the United States, um, came here for my bachelor's degree, did a um, double major in accounting and management, graduated Uh, Just before I graduated, my last, I was going in for my last semester, when I came down to North Carolina to visit a childhood friend that I'd grown up with in Botswana, and um, he took me. It was the Christmas holidays, and so he took me to their family because you know Christmas time everybody gathers around, Mm. and he took me to his uncle's house where I met my husband, which was Mm. his uncle's son.
0: And was it love
1: at first sight? I think so. I think he was intrigued by me because, uh, again, he's also of Ghanaian um, heritage and stuff, but he had never really met any Ghanaian young lady, and I think his parents had not either. Um, Where they grew up, there weren't many, if at all, any at all. And so I think they were excited to have met me um <laughs> and he gravitated gravitated towards me i found him interesting because he's a chemist but he knew a lot about the business world because i'll study business and that at that time there was um, some trading scandal that had gone on with people being blacklisted and he knew all about that and i was just like what what have you got to do with this And so that was, I think that was our conversation starting point. And, um, you know, we were going to spend the night just there. And before I knew it, it was two, three
0: nights.
1: (laughs) You know, hanging out in the house with him and his family and my friend, of course. Um, And then we left his house. We left the uncle's house just in time for New Year's to back to my friend's house. And my husband followed me there. Oh, wow.
0: (laughs) It's like, I'm
1: not letting go of this one. No, no. <laughs> no. And and um, so I flew back to college. I, I think it was, like, January 3rd. He stayed with us till that time, and I flew back to college, and, you know, we just couldn't get off the phone together. Like, it was just, we just went on and nonstop, like, oh, he ended up with, back in the, this was, like, 16 years ago where there wasn't free internet calls, so I think he ended up with a hot, uh, and they were in like unlimited talks and stuff. So he ended up with a phone bill of sixteen hundred or something crazy.
0: <laughs> and then he said, "Well, you've got to move to um, North Carolina." Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Yep. And so spring break, I came down. He took me to his parents to so officially let them know we were dating. And um, when I finished school, my bachelor's, I moved down here, and wow. the rest is history. Yeah. Wow.
0: <laughs> so when you met him and, you know, you started dating, did you think, yeah, this is the guy who I want to have a family with?
1: Um, I think so, yeah. I think by the third day I was, yeah, yeah, I was like, yeah. You invested. Yes. By the third day I was certain, like, this is it. And I could tell he, he was into me. I met him in December of twenty uh two thousand and three. September two thousand and four we were married. That was how quick.
0: Oh wow.
1: I got married.
0: And so did you start trying to conceive or did you wait for a while? Um, I gave myself a good
1: uh, two years. Uh partly because I wanted to get my career going. Uh, I had just finished my bachelor's and I was like, I need to, you know, get some experience under my belt. You know, I'm thinking like uh, woman um, and the challenges we have as women is if we, at least in corporate America, um, if you don't get your career going before you have the kids, you can forget it. And even when you have the kids and you've started your career, uh, you need to stay afloat by always doing something In your career related on the side, Otherwise, jumping back in is almost impossible. Or if you do jump in, you're definitely not going back to the level you were at. You're probably going to start from scratch if you're lucky for someone to give you that opportunity. So I was very big on, I needed to get that experience under my belt and then I can, um, you know, add that in. So for two years, which was what I had given myself and we had talked about it, we were not going to, Try and have kids until after the two years.
0: So after the two years, you decided to start trying. Yeah. So the the the, the weird part about all of this, though,
1: is we had talked about not trying mm. to have kids, but I never used contraception, contraceptives.
0: Right.
1: It was weird. I just didn't. Mm-hmm. I guess I had moved down here. I hadn't. Um, found a clinic or, you know, uh, OBs or things that I was comfortable with yet. I hadn't really had the time to explore. What I did is I just went straight to look for work and started working
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and did not bother looking for doctors or anything. And so, yeah, I was like, yeah, we're not trying to have kids, but I wasn't trying to stop it either. Mm. Um, but I knew at the same time that I wouldn't really want them yet. Uh, that was the the weirdest part of it all.
0: Knowing that you were not on any protection and you didn't fall pregnant in that time, did you ever wonder why? Were you concerned? No.
1: I Somehow I thought I had a willpower. <laughs> I was really <laughs> mentally ready. You know, it all come back to me. <laughs> Science didn't matter to me somehow in my mind. I don't know what yeah. I was thinking. Young and stupid probably. <laughs>
0: When did you realize that something wasn't right? How long were you trying for before you decided to seek some help? Yeah.
1: So to um, So after my two years, I still wasn't really bothered by it per se until I remember when uh, I think I want to say my fourth year was when I was like um, telling my husband, like, look, we need to try harder. <laughs> That's what I said. I was like, we need to try harder because it's not happening. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see when you're 30, 31. Because, okay, another thing about me is so I finished my undergrad at 24, not because of anything, because I started university in Botswana, was well into it, like two, three years, two, almost three years, I think. And then I came to the US and started all over again. So when I finished my bachelor's on this side of the world, I was 24. So I remember and then get, got married about 25 and then um, tried. And then I remember 29 was, you know, when I was like, hey, we need to try harder. So, you know, we're going, I'm going off by what my parents have told me, have taught me, right? You get the degree, you get a job, you get married, or get that good job, or vice versa, get that good job, get married buy the house and then start a family. So at twenty nine, I'm like, yep, it's time we need to buy the house. And then so I knew when we buy the house, we need to have the kids.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, so you you oh, I was an
0: agenda. That's yes. your agenda. Yeah. Yep.
1: So you're having that sequential order that you've been mm. raised up to believe and think it's the norm to go. Mm. And so that's what I was I was like, okay, twenty nine, we're buying a house all right. Then the babies must come into place. And I remember even when we were looking at houses, he would be like, yeah, this is might be big enough for soccer. And no, this piece of plot is not big enough. You know, 30, I'm like, we need to try more, much harder. But by this time, I also had doctors because, again, my first two years, I'd say I probably didn't really see doctors. But after that, I was now, after I got settled in with work and everything, my health mm-hmm. became very equally important to me and I started um, seeing the OBs yearly and every year they would say you are doing great you can have the babies there's nothing wrong with you so I felt like as long as I had a doctor's stamp that I could have babies I was good to Mm go Mm -hmm. right and so I was like there's nothing wrong with me the doctor and you know family members would come pitching you and then, hey, what's going on? And, you know, and you'd be like, there's nothing wrong with me. The doctor says I'm fine. <laughs> you know? Well, mm. and I kept going like that. And then I was so focused on I need my career to keep growing. And then I, while I was working, I went back to grad school. I always had something to distract me. Okay, you bought a house. Okay, after the house. Okay, I need to go to grad school. And I don't need one master's. I need two masters. <laughs> right. Right. And so then I did all of that. I think it for me, looking back, it was a form of distraction. Um, I didn't want family, everyone badgering me about it. It was like, look, I'm busy. Mm-hmm. I've got these things going on. I can't really. Mm-hmm. But deep down, I was always I was I didn't take my doctor's OB's appointments for granted. I went to them religiously. I did my pap smears. I did you know whatever that they wanted me to do, and they always yeah. gave me the rubber stamp. You're good. Mm-hmm. So. I think at the age of 32 or 33 was when um, they were like, oh, you look like you have some growth in you, but let's do a hysteroscopy and let's see and let's assess and let's see what's going on. And they did the hysteroscopy and they found some growth that was like um, fibroids looking and they removed it. It was an in Patient office, Dr. OBGYN, um office visit. She took care of it. She numbed me and the anesthesia, but I was awake. I could see what was going on, and she did it. Um, and then she told me I was doing great, and I should be okay, and I can have my kids, and that didn't happen. And then I just kept going. Um, my period started being funny, short, thick, heavy, Staying in the bed, blah, blah, blah. I started attributing that to I'm getting older. Maybe that's why my periods are shorter. You know, my hormones are changing because I'm getting older. That's why everything's changing. Because, again, I was seeing the doctors. And they were like, you're okay. There's nothing wrong with you. Then at 37, um I remember going to the OB and she was like, There's nothing wrong. She, and I, that was like so weird. It was December, my annual appointment, and she pressed my belly. She's like, Oh gosh, you're perfectly fine. You can have as many babies as you want. Well, I was sick of that response by this time. I was like, No, there's, there's got to be something more. So I booked an appointment again, and I told them, I'm like, No, it's time for me to have a baby. I must have a baby like i feel like it is this time and so i went back to them and they did all this fsh test or all these you know thyroid and all these things check me out I'm like everything is checking out good we don't know why you should be fine let's do a semen analysis on your husband i got my husband and he went and he would do a like hmm okay We think he's fine as well, but, you know, we don't know why. And I was like, okay. And that's when I decided that I am going to check myself into, I referred myself to a fertility doctor. So this is December when I saw the um, OBGYN. March of the following year, I went to see the... um, the um, fertility doctor. Actually, it was December 2016 is when I saw the OB. March 2017 is when I went to see the fertility doctor. And they were like, within an hour of consultation, he was like, "Uh, you have a lot of fibroids in you. No. Yes.
0: That just came up after they've been doing scans after scans on you and no one picked that up. Yeah.
1: Well, the OB was never doing any scans. They were just oh. feeling the belly, doing pap smear, and sending you off. Right. And so then he, the the endocrinologist did an ultrasound and was like, honey, you're loaded with fibers. There, there's mm-hmm. no way you could conceive. And so then he right away put in a request to do an MRI. I did it. Yeah. Within three days, I went to get the MRI done. Within 24 hours, he got the results. He called me. I was like, you're infertile. The the fibroids are densely packed, compact. There is no space in this womb whatsoever for even a sperm to swim through or even a baby to be able to um, survive. And so he referred me to uh, a surgeon, a minimally invasive surgeon. And he had discussed with her that they needed me to preserve my womb because I am. Tr- we're trying to have a baby. And so I went to see her, like, I think within two weeks or a week after he called me. Because he liaisoned with her directly, I was able to, everything moved so fast, you know, because it was basically like, they looked at my age, they looked at, like, you know, um, quality of eggs and all of that mm. stuff. And they're like, you're like a second time bomb. Like it's going to start dropping really fast going forward. So we need mm. to try and get as many eggs as we can out of you now. And so everything moved really fast. He, within a week, have me go, I met up with the surgeon. She gave me the treatment options For someone who wants to be able to preserve their womb, we decided that abdominal myomectomy was probably my best option. Um, And she scheduled me for three weeks out because that was at the earliest availability. And um, I went and got the surgery done. And they removed fibroids about the size of, you know, when you put them all together, about the size of a full grown baby, about seven pounds. Um, I had sizes ranging from five centimeters to eight, which I hear are pretty big, Um, tennis ball sizes. Um, Mm. They were sitting, some sitting on my bladder. And that made sense why I had um, the constant urination, you know.
0: Yeah, it's funny how we ignore symptoms, right? You said that you were constantly going to the loo. Sex must have been painful. Yes, I didn't enjoy it, and and you must have had a heavy flow, and and let alone the colour of your period. Not sure what it's like for you, but you know we tend to push through and think it's normal, you know. And I think it's because we don't talk about mm-hmm. it, so we don't know any different. Yeah, we. We we self-diagnose ourselves,
1: and and that's a pr- big problem with Black women. That's why, um, and I actually posted that on Instagram on one of my my um, Vinton sessions. I was like, you know, if you Black women, if you have a headache, speak out, because we don't speak out on our issues, and so when we finally, when one of us goes to speak out, they look at you, and especially in the United States, you're like. I'm in pain. They're looking at you like, you're yeah, right, because you're not the only one that has fiber. Why are you the only one in pain? They don't take you serious, right? Because not too many people have come up and said, I'm in pain. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so as a result of us not complaining, there isn't mm-hmm. enough data, if at all, anything, on a lot of our issues, right? And when there isn't enough data, mm-hmm. then there isn't a reason why they should channel resources, as much resources to it as they could, and I personally, whether it's true or not, mm. believe that that is why we're still dealing with not knowing what really causes fiber to this day. Because we don't, it happens to women mm. of color more than anybody, but we don't complain much about mm. it for them to really see the severity of it, right? And channel more resources. They are channeling resources, too, because I have been, I was actually part of a study that UNC Chapel Hill, which is where I I was going to, they were doing a, a national studies on women and fibroids and stuff. And I was put in that study because I guess because of my case, right? Uh, and that's great. And mm-hmm. so obviously they have channeling resources, but they could channel a whole lot more if we spoke up more, but we don't. And I just did whatever what most women would do, especially women of color, is self-diagnose. You know, I used to be like the colors black and gray were my colors because it was all my skirts for work, my clothes were black and gray and navy blue, because if I stained myself, which I always did. You wouldn't be able to see it that easily. And every time I stained myself, I would have to come home and take a quick shower and go back to the office. And I still didn't think there was anything wrong with me. I was too busy, wrapped up in work. I don't want to miss work because you don't want to seem like a sloppy person. You're a person of color. You're probably the only one in your office. And so you just want to keep going. And so you ignore the signs. And get consumed by, I've got to get my work done. I've got to perform. I've got to put on a good show. And in so doing, you neglect your health. And that's what I realized when they told me that there's no chance I could have ever been pregnant with this than I knew. And then it also were, became apparent to me why I was constantly exhausted. It's because lethar- I was constantly lethargic I feeling exhausted because I was anemic, severely anemic.
0: Okay, so you got your diagnosis, you had your surgery. What was the next step? What was going through your mind? Were you thinking, okay, my uterus is clear? Let's just have those babies.
1: Yes, I was that was that was more exciting for me. Looking forward to my fertility treatment starting, which they were telling me I had to wait for six months recovery full recovery before they would start Mm. fertility treatment and you know i was pressuring the doctor like can we start early and he was like okay well let's see three months you know and so i was Mm. for me during my recovery i looked forward to fertility treatment starting um that was all i could think about was a baby in my arms and i Mm. started shopping and buying i bought the baby a crib um, I started buying I started buying baby furniture because I was like, I'm gonna be a mom. Uh that's all I could think yeah. about. I bought her a bassinet. I went ahead and got that. Um Sounds yeah. like you were really faith by it. Yes. And I put it by the side of my bed and every day. My husband was so confused. Yeah. <laughs> when he walked in when he walked in uh one day and found this by my the side of my bed uh, the side of our bed and he was really confused and he was dressing up to go to work one morning cuz he came in late and the lights were off and everything and he didn't see it and one morning and then the following morning he saw it and he he was looking so confused and I was standing behind him watching his reaction and he was buttoning his shirt inside out and I was I tapped his shoulder and I was like you like it. And he just kept trying to button his shit be- and couldn't figure out why he couldn't because he was too busy staring at that thing and buttoning his shit inside out. And I was like, your shirt is inside out, so you can't button it. <laughs> so- <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I actually was really looking forward to that. That's how I was preparing myself. I started preparing myself mm-hmm. mentally, physically, Um just buying baby stuff. Like I was going crazy. Um, and then three months later I went for my follow-up visit and that's when I was told that another fibroid was growing in me. And then I was really pissed because I thought they did a shabby job on me. And I was like, I don't understand. Mm -hmm. How can I have another fibroid growing in me? Did you guys not remove all that you needed to remove? Which I was, Mm -hmm. I was, I had been told right from the get-go that they were not going to be able to remove everything. They were going to try to remove whatever that was inside the inner cavity and then shrink the ones yeah. in the womb lining because they didn't want to mess with the womb lining. And apparently yeah. the ones that they shrunk in the womb lining had made its way back into the inner cavity. And so instead of starting a fertility treatment, which was in July of 2017... I was being told I am going to have to go back under the knife. And so September of 2017, I went back under the knife and they removed that fibroid. And then in November, uh, I went back and they uh, examined me and thought, okay, you're fine. And I pushed and I pushed and Then they started to do the IUI. They wanted to wait till December. I was like, oh man, it's just a few weeks ahead, you know, and they're like, okay, fine. And so we started the IUI treatment at that point. And um, I wasn't successful that um, it was Thanksgiving time, if I remember, in November. And so then um, we decided. Sorry, we decided to go back again in December to do another round of IUI, and that failed as well. Um, And and during my December IUI cycle, that's when they realized that another fibroid was growing in the Mm -hmm. inner cavity again. Um, And um, we also had to do some counseling with the doctor. Um, We had to go see a psychologist who was part of the fertility treatment plan. And I remember the counseling went really emotional, where my husband, I think, out of frustration of, you know, going through all fertility treatments and just dealing with infertility for so many years, was like, he wasn't sure if he wanted this anymore. And so then the psychologist wrote a report to the doctors, telling them that we don't seem to be on the same page because of that comment. And this clinic I was going to was a little bit weird because it was a state-owned facility. However, it wasn't cheaper or anything. It was equally, the prices were exactly the same as going to a private doctor. Uh, Mm. But I guess they had more red tape to go through as a state-owned facility. One of it was the counseling and stuff. And then they had an ethics committee, which till this day I still don't understand why where the doctors will get together and assess your k- report based on the psychologist's report and decide whether you guys they want to continue to treat you. In my case, they, because of the co- the comment my husband made, they decided that we are not working mm-hmm. together as a team and therefore they don't want to treat us again. So I asked them to transfer my file to the private, um, fertility clinic right here in North Carolina in uh, Raleigh. And, um, in January of 2018, I went there to meet the doctor. And I had told my doctor at the other clinic to let the, give full disclosure to this doctor to let them know. So when I got to this doctor, the first thing I remember asking him is, do you have a perfect marriage? And he was like, no. And I looked around the room and I'm like, does anyone here have a perfect marriage? And they all thought I was crazy. And I was like, nobody will. And I was like, neither do I. So I asked the doctor, I said, are you going to treat me? because I don't want you to waste my time. And he was like, yeah, I've looked at your file, I've seen everything that went on, and I don't see why not. And so we decided at that point that we were going to go straight to IVF, considering, um, again, we were racing against time, and I'd done two IUIs and it had failed. And so mm. we, uh, we started the process of trying to do it in that January. However... He did a scan and realized I had a cyst on my ovaries, which I had never heard about. And it was pretty inflamed. And so we couldn't start the treatment at that point. Um, he asked me to wait till my next cycle, which was going to start in February. And then we were going to start. So February, I went back and um, everything looked good when they did the scan. And so we started the treatment. Went through retrieval in February, um, and then we wanted to do, we did the PGS and PGD testing. So, you know, with that one, they have to take a sample and freeze the embryos and stuff. So this was like February ended to March, first week in March, the embryos went for um, the testing whilst that was going on, I was doing my medication to prepare, you know, the progesterone and oil and um, mm-hmm. um, the, um, what's it called? I did the Bayer aspirin and also I did the, um, there was another pill, you know, for hormones. Anyway, and I, so I, I continued with my medication. And so because I was on medication, I was being monitored. And in March, just when they thought they could do the embryo transfer, they realized another the fibroid that they had seen in December in the other clinic and also this doctor had had now really grown and filled up the inner cavity and needed to be removed. So once again, I went under the knife um, and they removed that. By this point, Ella, I had done enough surgeries, including, you know, retrieval in itself as a surgery. Last fibroid surgery was going to be my fifth one. So I kind of knew all the, which anesthesia was good for me, which ones I reacted to, which ones made me sleep really well. I knew which veins you could get good blood out of without any issues um, and I remember the anesthesiologist, I was asking him what drug was he going to put me under to sleep. And he thought I was crazy. Cause I was like, look, I've had this, I've had, this. and I was like, you know, propofol is really good. Cause, it, <laughs> Cause I had had propofol and it was the best one. I was like, I could understand why Michael Jackson got hooked on that one. It was really good. I felt really rested when I woke up from propofol, my last surgery. And he thought I was crazy. And um, he was struggling to find a vein to start, you know, putting the ivy through. He was doing my knuckle. I was like, nobody ever does my knuckle. You're not going to get a vein there. I was like, you need to. Give me that
0: thing. Let me do it myself. You know, he's
1: not listening to me. I'm like, you need to go right here. Right Mm -hmm. here. To the left. The left part of my arm. Right Mm -hmm. there. And he wouldn't listen. Because he's a doctor. He knows better, right? And I was like, okay. Anyway, after poking me enough times, he finally looked at me. I'm like. And I gave him the sign here and he poked and there it was. And I was like, see, cause you, you know, you've been through enough stabbings, you know,
0: your body, right?
1: Yeah. You've done enough stabbings to know which ones are, which sides are effective and which sides are not. You've um, done enough anesthesia to know which ones are good and not. Um, So anyway, I went into my last fibroid surgery and we did not wait for recovery within two weeks I had my embryo transfer done and went through the two weeks waiting period. I didn't go to work the entire time, rested at home to, you know, laid back life. And then started, um, and then got the confirmation, pregnancy confirmation. And that's when I went back to work. Um, Yeah, it was really, it was so surreal. It was, it was so surreal. I just remember falling to the floor and sobbing when I got the call to say you were pregnant. I was pregnant.
0: How did you tell your husband? Was he with you?
1: No, he was at work. I called him right away.
0: And I was like, mm-hmm.
1: I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. I can't believe. And he was he couldn't believe it either. It was like, it was very, to both of us, we were like, is this real? Is this a joke? Is it mm-hmm. you know? And, um. So, yeah, I went back to work and then I think I want to say two weeks into it is when I started getting those really sick symptoms kicking in. Um, mm-hmm. And um, then I had to call my mother-in-law for help because I could barely get myself out of bed. I think just,
0: wow.
1: you know, I think my, my body had just taken a lot of beating. And mm-hmm. so I started getting a lot of the exhaustion very early in the pregnancy, really early. I could barely lift my head up. Of course, that factored with my age too. At this point, um, it was pretty rough. And so, she came in and nursed me, helped nurse me, make you know, making sure I'm eating because I, I couldn't hold food down. You know, the whole yeah. thing. I started having swollen feet by three months, um, but my blood pressure wasn't high. It was actually the best it had ever been during pregnancy. And so it wasn't blood pressure or diabetes, sugar diabetes, pregnancy-induced diabetes or anything related. It was just, um, know, yeah, I was retaining more fluids, I guess.
0: As your pregnancy went on, did you have a normal pregnancy? Did you have any complications or was it just literally textbook? It
1: was normal pregnancy
0: as far as yeah. I know. Exhaustion, they were telling me, was
1: normal due to, um, yeah. you know, I remember my OB just kept saying, you know, you're pumped with hormones more than the the regular pregnancy, so you are going to be exhausted because of all the hormones you have in you. Uh, I remember her constantly saying that.
0: Now tell us um, about your birth, yeah. going in for a normal vaginal birth.
1: Yeah. We, now we had actually scheduled a C-section right. based on all the complications I had had. The doctors were telling me 37 weeks was the maximum they were going to let me go. And it was going to have to be a planned C-section. So we scheduled the C-section for 37 weeks. um, And I guess the doctor we got was 37 weeks and 3 days, Mm -hmm. to be Mm exact. And so December 26th was the scheduled C-section day, and so we went in for delivery. Um, I went in there with the notion that I was going to give birth. They told me it's 45 minutes. And, and so the full thing's getting cut up, getting the baby taken out, and stitching you back is an hour and a half and you're done. Mm-hmm. Well, they took out the baby. And all of a sudden, first of all, in the theater, they asked me what song they wanted me, they, I wanted to listen to it. And I asked for Chris Tomlin. Mm-hmm. And the doctor's eyes lit up. And she's I love her too. So we knew right that we had something in common. And so they were playing as Chris Tomlin. They're doing all the... Procedures on me. I'm listening to them. My husband is holding my hand, and they get the baby out, and it's just tears of joy. And um, they put the baby on me, and then they, you know, take the baby, clean her up, and have my husband um, hold her. And then all of a sudden, there's silence, mm. and all I hear is machines. Mm-hmm. And I hear the doctor get on the phone. And um she confirms something about placenta in Creta and comes to me. And she's like, I'm sorry, we're gonna have to put you to sleep. And all of a sudden I just you call the doctor, call, and the room is suddenly filled yeah. with all these top surgeons and all these anesthesiologists, and they are like, We're gonna have to put you to sleep. Did they explain and so the why? anesthesiologist They told me I was hemorrhaging to death and um, that they were going to, that was my only option was they were going to have to do a a hysterectomy. And so they told my husband to leave the theater with the baby to the NICU Mm -hmm. and um, put me to sleep. I just remember just, you know, that yeah them putting the mask over you or whatever did it just like me. literally and that was it
0: like was it in seconds and you just, what was going through your head it was though? like oh my gosh am I gonna die I screamed what, what?
1: I know I didn't even think about dying I was like what about my embryo? <gasps> that's that's the first thing I, I, somehow I didn't think about dying even though they told me I was yeah just, I was like, <laughs> what about my embryos <laughs> You know, I just think about my babies and I just, I remember just screaming out and saying, what about my embryos? And my husband's like, don't worry, we'll we'll figure that out.
0: How did it affect you knowing that you weren't able to have children?
1: Um, It was very traumatic for me. Um, I was very sad, but I also, the good thing is I was aware of options out there. So it made me very hopeful, but I had to go through a lot of emotional recovery or working on myself or talking to myself that my daughter was not the reason why I lost my womb. It was very emotional for me, the whole um thing knowing that I couldn't give birth again. But I think what made me feel slightly better was the fact that I was aware of options out there. My husband threw out adoption.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. But I also knew of surrogacy Mm -hmm. and I knew surrogacy was a good option for us because we had embryos and I reminded him of that. Mm. Um, And I think for me, talking about that with him was part of uh, my healing process Mm. because this was three weeks after the delivery of the baby. We were having this discussion about, we we both knew we wanted another child right away because of the magical experience we had had with our first child. Mm. We enjoyed it so much, we couldn't believe that we had missed out on this all these years. Mm. And we're certain we wanted it again. Um, And so talking about it was for me part of my healing, I think, Mm. I believe. Um, And now it made me focus on what's next Mm. more so than just wallowing on what had happened. Mm. And so I started really looking forward to the surrogacy.
0: I mean, that sounded like an easy decision that you made. So, is there anything that you would have done differently if you could have?
1: Yes. I definitely would have probably started planning, aggressively demanding answers from the OBGYNs years before um, the time I did. I felt like I didn't advocate enough for myself. Mm. Um, and so nobody took me serious because when I went to the fertility doctor and I started seeing the new sets of OBs after that, they were telling me, oh, at 35, you should have done like womb lining thickness tests. At 37, you should have done, you know, there were milestones, tests that should have, and nothing except a pap smear. I was upset at myself for not pushing harder and saying no. It's not enough to tell me unexplained infertility. It's not enough. You've got to tell me there's something. Maybe if I pushed harder then they were going to be prompted to do those milestone tests that they should have done. And so that's what I wish I had done differently.
0: Yeah, I hear you. I mean, advocating for yourself is really important and if you have a feeling even if it turns yeah. out to be nothing, yeah. at least you've checked. You know, I think if there yeah, if it doesn't look right yeah. or if it doesn't feel right, Take a Mm -hmm. look, don't wait, just go and check it out. That's Mm -hmm. what I think. Your GP might not even listen to you or your fertility specialist isn't listening to you. What do you do during those times? You know, I think it's important for us to advocate for ourselves and, you know, ask for a second opinion. Pick yourself up and go and see someone else.
1: Second opinion.
0: Nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. I definitely,
1: and that's why I'm
0: speaking out now
1: is... So that people are aware that, look, there's things that I don't know what they're supposed to because I didn't get them done. But I do know that there are things that should be done. And so if things are not going the way you expect, by all means, get a second opinion and keep forcing, demanding those answers until you get them. Don't sit down quietly about them. You know, you need to demand for those um, demand. The answers to your questions. Um, that's why I'm speaking now because it really shouldn't have taken over 10 years to get a diagnosis. It really shouldn't have.
0: No, you're right. And I really hope that if someone is experiencing something that isn't quite right um, and they've got a feeling, please just go to your GP and check it out because it's always safety first. Akria, thank you so much for Joining me today and staying up to talk to me and sharing your journey and stepping out. Um, I much appreciate it. And you've got two gorgeous kids, and I wish you all the luck. Thank you again for sharing with us.
1: Well, thank you, Ella, for having me um, here. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to interview me as well and to share my story with the world. I'm hoping that anyone that will hear this will take it serious to advocate for themselves. Um, educate yourself as much as possible then take things for granted Um, even if it's something as a headache don't take it as a headache and just keep going let's look at it deeply because there might be some more issues going on there and um, so I mean I encourage women to advocate for yourself because nobody will advocate for you like you would and that's the truth no one will love you the way you love yourself no one cannot people will do what you allow them to do to you
0: so true thank you so much for those great last words Akria. thank you again and have a wonderful evening you
1: too you have a great day i know you guys your day just started we're going to bed (laughs) yeah hopefully next time we can talk more about the surrogacy part two. i guess at some point
0: yeah absolutely but that's a completely new episode all right thank you ella Take care, see you. You too. Bye. Thanks.